Hello and welcome to another episode of The Abundant Edge, the podcast all about the worlds of permaculture, natural building, and regenerative living. As always, I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher, and I have a fantastic interview for you in this episode. So stick around and we will jump right on in. Right, so before we get started, are you looking for a gift for your loved ones in the upcoming season? but don't want to get them some consumer junk that'll just get tossed out in a couple weeks? I know I always struggle to find gifts that will have a positive impact, something that will fill the coming year with the practical and positive solutions that permaculture has to offer. So consider a gift subscription to Permaculture Magazine of North America. From recipes from the garden to useful DIY projects, tips from the pros, and so much more, a subscription to Permaculture Magazine is a perfect way to spread positivity and useful knowledge all year long. Your friends and family will be thrilled to have all this information at their fingertips as they develop their own healthy and regenerative lifestyles. If you order the print version, you'll also receive the 25-year digital archive of the original Permaculture International magazine from the UK as a free bonus for a limited time only. There's also a digital subscription option for people like me who are always traveling and need this as a resource while we're on the go. Permaculture magazine is a proud sponsor of the Abundant Edge podcast and here to be a platform to support the voices of the permaculture movement throughout North America. So show your support this holiday season and help to strengthen the permaculture revolution with a subscription today at permaculturemag.org. Have you ever felt completely bogged down by the weight of current events and news? Things like climate change, government corruption, war, and violence seem to be the norm and hard to get away from. I know these things affect me deeply, and that's why I'm always looking for positive news and media about solutions and inspiring change. That's why I'm proud to say that I've partnered with one of my favorite sources for just those things. New Society Publishers are book publishers that focus on putting out great books and positive solutions for individuals and organizations seeking to change their lives so that they can go on to change the world for the better. And what's more, their company mandate goes far beyond the single bottom line of profit. They actually care deeply, not only about what they publish, but also about how they do business. They believe in the authors they take on and the works they bring to the marketplace. From sustainable living to progressive parenting, New Society publishers have the books you need to help build a better world. In fact, the author that I'm interviewing today, Zach Lokes, and his book The Permaculture Market Garden are published by them. And if you stay tuned at the end of this interview, I'll tell you how you can be eligible to win your own copy of the Permaculture Market Garden. So stick around for that after the interview. All right, my guest today is here to demystify one of the aspects of permaculture design that I hear the most questions about, but also one of the issues that I see folks most entrenched in their viewpoints about. Now I'm talking about earthworks, one of the first aspects that people implement and the most permanent change made on a landscape. So today I've got Douglas Barnes, the author of Permaculture Earthworks, and owner and director of EcoEdge Design LTD, to answer our questions and take the guesswork out of the subject of terrain changes. In this interview, Douglas talks about the best way to map out contours on the land, some of the most effective ways to harvest rainwater on a site, how to link up various earthworks and containment systems to make them work in tandem, and most importantly, he talks in detail about many of the safety concerns that many people have no idea about when it comes to installing swales and dams. Now there's a ton of valuable information in this session, but don't forget to check out his book, Permaculture Earthworks, for some essential formulas on calculating for swales, water catchment, and so much more. 
Make sure you keep listening at the end of this interview to hear how you can win your own free copy of the book as well. Now I'll turn things over to Douglas Barnes. Hey Douglas, thanks so much for taking the time to be here today. How are you doing? Doing great. It's my pleasure to be here. Thanks. All right, so I've got a ton of questions to ask you about your book and Earthworks, but before we get jumping right into that, how about you tell us a little bit about your background, how you got started in permaculture, and how you started your company? Well, I got started back in Japan, and it was about 1998. I sort of was buying a whole bunch of books, and I'd actually seen Bill Mollison on the Discovery Channel and thought, well, this is really interesting stuff. So I ordered the designer's manual and it arrived and kind of leafed through it a bit and sort of said, huh, and didn't really get it and put it on the shelf and it gathered dust for a few years. And then 2004, I pulled it off the shelf and thought, hey, this is really interesting stuff and got into permaculture that way. I took off to Australia to do a course with Jeff Lawton. And when Bill Mollison came out of retirement in 2005, I went back again the next year and did another course with him and and Jeff Lawton. And by the time I made my way back to Canada from Japan, I thought, well, let's see if we can't make a go of this permaculture stuff. So I started a company here in Ontario. And here I am. Fantastic. You had the opportunity to go straight to the source in your learning. I was kind of lucky that way, yeah. Brilliant. Now, so before we jump into the technical aspects of earthworks, could you touch a little on the current state of water waste and erosion around the world? How big of a problem is it, and how is it affecting our communities? Well... Certainly in in dry lands, it's a very serious issue, and it's something that's starting to intensify conflicts, both local and regional, as well as international conflicts. And at the rate of decline of aquifers and, and river flows, particularly in dry lands, it's becoming a very serious issue. So projections are towards a population on Earth, peaking at around 9 billion people, well, when, once we start getting near those levels, we're going to have a real problem with water in much of the world. Now, as you mentioned, erosion is another issue coupled with that, and that sort of goes in hand in hand with how we're using water and how we're you know, pursuing agriculture. So we can, we can definitely do better than we're doing today. But it is something that is, well, both problems, water gets a little bit more attention, but erosion is is just not a sexy problem. So it's not talked about very much in media circles, but they are major issues that are coming to the forefront now. Yeah, considering how much water topsoil is able to hold within it, I would imagine that, yeah, like you said, erosion doesn't end up as kind of the headline issues that people try to tackle, but is absolutely essential for bringing larger amounts of water and storing them into the soil where they can be used uh, directly through the root systems of plants, but also to prevent uh, further erosion downhill and better penetration of the water into deeper levels of the soil, which can regenerate aquifers and other sources, correct? 
Yes, and that's just sort of a logical strategy is, is holding things up higher in the landscape and holding it in the soil is just, you know, it just makes sense when you stop and you think about it. So, you know, some of the places I've been in the world, uh, I've got projects that I'd like to go back to and and continue the work in the regions. And I just think, well, okay, I'd really like to be stopping up at the uh, the top of the mountain ranges and work there. And I know then we'll get more water downhill. But these are, you know, uh, some of the work I've done in India, it's just, it's emotionally draining to go there to see how desperate the water situation is in a place that should be like a dry tropical region, but it's becoming semi-arid and, and even some areas becoming desert as well. It's just kind of frightening. Yeah, certainly. I mean, this can inf- basically impact an entire bioregion, if not watershed. And like you were saying, you want to try and start up as high as possible on the source, but without having access to those parts, there's only so much that can be done down at later levels to have a real impact. Yeah, yeah. Um, in in the book, one of the things I consider to be a water harvesting earthwork is trees. So I've got a, a whole chapter on trees in there. But really, there's a there's a friend of mine in this particular region in India who's got just a brilliant NGO where he's been doing what he can to regreen his region and has really done some fantastic work. But I think you know if if I could ever get back there with his help we could start making some major, major impact on the hydrological system in that area. That's great. Well, let's hope that that can be made to happen. So before you ever get started digging and implementing your designs, can you tell us a little about how you go about mapping the land and assessing the water harvesting potential of a site? Yeah, well, it's... um, First and foremost is is your climate. So it, if it's a dry land, you can have a much bigger impact. It can be much easier to see what you're doing after, you know, just after the first rainfall. But there is a bit of an issue, I think, in permaculture with people just kind of going willy-nilly and and stopping the water. Maybe maybe it's not fair to put that all on permaculture. Uh, let's let's take the example of Australia, where the use of farm dams has exploded over the past, let's say, 30, 40 years. And it's to the point where it's starting to have significant impact on the watersheds in Australia. And they've introduced legislation now that, you know, it really limits what you can do on a, on a landscape. So do have to be careful. We have to think about the water rights of other people downstream. So we don't just want to grab everything and stop the whole system. In, you know, in the, the same token, we can't pin it all on dams. I don't believe that Australia would be in the pickle that it's in at the moment if they didn't have the land clearing post-World War II that they did for agriculture. So what they did was they cleared massive amounts of eucalyptus forest for the sake of vegetable and uh, agricultural production. So going back to trees again, I consider them to be water harvesting elements. 
if you do that, you are going to dry up your landscape. And we just see that that lesson being taught again and again around the world. You know, cut the trees, you're going to reduce water. Yeah. So that that's well, getting back to your question, that's sort of the first thing is is being careful. Yeah, we can think about what elements can be beneficial on site, but also be cognizant of the fact that people downstream their first instinct is to consider you stealing their water. So you want to be careful about that. You'd like to design a system that that doesn't just stop water but rehydrates the landscape and eventually provides them with more. And you have to implement these things gradually so you're not suddenly tying up a bunch of runoff that they would have had otherwise. So it needs to be phased in. But then again, uh, when it comes to broader planning, safety is a major concern for me. When I think about anything, I just imagine, okay, we'll put in system X, whatever it involves, whether it's swales, dams, uh, ripping the soil, assuming, okay, it's going to catastrophically fail. And what happens when the whole thing you know, if it's a if it's a dam, what happens when the dam wall blows out and the whole thing washes down? So I like to assume everything is going to fail. I build it so that it won't, but assume that it will for safety's sake. Of course. And then the other issue is the kind of soil you're on, how safe is it? How stable is it? And does your region have a history of, of landslides? And then I just get more and more cautious that way. There, there are regions here in Ontario that I just take the the safe approach and I I don't recommend doing any earthworks on them at all. That's sort of that's sort of my approach. If there's any specific questions, I'd be happy to try and address them. Yeah, of course. So let's talk a little bit more about uh the dangers or the risk of over-harvesting water on a landscape and how can you mitigate that? How can you assess it to begin with? Um and then how can you implement certain aspects that will help to rehydrate the landscape without sending it over the tipping point or causing any undue risk. Yeah. Well, Australia, again, is a good example. They've got some what are essentially flood floodwater catchment systems in some of their, well, some of the tributaries of the, the Murray River. And there's a large one which... Uh, of of course, because I want to talk about it, I can't remember the name at the moment, but um, it catch, captures quite a large amount of water going through this one tributary and has a very, very noticeable, measurable impact on the amount of water downstream. So the water flowing through the the lower reaches of the Murray River are are significantly decreased by this. So that's that kind of harvesting is happening very very low in the watershed in the sense that it's it's happening right on the river itself so that will have the biggest effect on the amount of water that's taken out of the watershed so the higher up in the landscape you have not only the more you the more potential do you have to hydrate the landscape, but also the less of an impact you're going to have on river flow. Yeah. So that's sort of step number one. Um, 
I, I did have a, a guy recently contact me from um, East Africa. Uh, I think it was Somaliland. And he had, well, he said, what can you do? And I said, well, you know, I'd have understand I have to consult a, d- a distance. So take everything I say, not as a prescription, but as an idea. And he got that. He was comfortable with it. But I looked at his site on Google Earth, and it was just kind of one of these sites where you look at it and you think, oh, God, it's it's kind of depressed. You're like, people live here? <laughs> yeah. It's possible? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, I had some suggestions revolving around um, spate spate irrigation which is um which is just what i was talking about which is flood flood catchment irrigation but i you know with plenty of warnings saying okay well this is traditional stuff that's done in your area um however there is the huge potential for over harvesting and making some some very upset neighbors downstream Mm. Um, there wasn't much in the way of evidence of people living sort of downstream from where he was, but I'm sure, you know, um, nomadic people moving through the landscape would rely on the water that does flow through. So, you know, I say make everything small scale if you can. Yeah. And, you know, for a few years for sure. Yeah. He he was certainly familiar with, with permaculture. He'd taken a, I think, um, Jeff Lawton's online course and kind of had an understanding that, you know, you don't, don't build mega projects, but right, um, right. so in areas was, like that that are at extreme risk, what are some safety measures that you can put in? Like for example, where I am here in Guatemala, we're in a in a valley among a lot of mountains that empties out into a large lake, and every year during the rainy season, or if a hurricane comes through, which only happens every couple of years, but there's always evacuation warnings here in these valleys. Um, for the risk of mudslides, landslides. Are there some things that you can recommend uh, that can be implemented on a large scale that can help to reduce the risks of regions like this? Well, we're starting to see an increase in uh, landslide tragedies. And that's because... It's because of our numbers. We've got a population that's kind of filled up the good land. And now we're starting to move towards steeper and steeper land, which is something that, you know, we considered not suitable for building in the past. Um, So we've got more people living in mountainous regions today all around the world than, than we used to. It used to be people just for the most part, you know, there are always mountain villages, but for the most part, they just avoided these areas. It's not an option anymore. So with respect to earthworks to prevent a landslide, mm, not so much apart from, let's say, uh, terracing for agriculture in limited runs, you know, like keeping it keeping it down to about... Um, say six or so benches per run and then giving yourself a a stretch of forest but trees 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 (laughs) trees are trees are your friend when it comes to that what about other uh deep rooted plants like vetiver grass and to some degree um 
Now, I can only actually think of the ones around here that have indigenous names, but I know there's quite a few erosion prevention plants. Do you have any ones that you recommend or ways of implementing them? Um, well, I think that's a good example. I mean, vetiver grass is kind of a, a standby. Um, I think uh, bamboo, certainly I know bamboo is used in Japan at least. Yep, it's used here uh -huh. as well. Yeah, and I'm fast growing, great products from it. It's great stuff in my mm -hmm. opinion. Um, and I'm, I'm a little bit jealous of, you know, the way it will grow in your climate. But then again, I'm jealous of the way everything will grow in your climate. Yeah, so, our climate's pretty sweet. <laughs> There's a, yeah. quite a lot of risks. In fact, there was just a volcano that went off uh, within line of sight from me here. And we had an earthquake, I think, two days ago. Plus, the rainy season can be pretty heavy. So, I mean, we've got our mitigating factors for sure, but the climate is is pretty good for growing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, this is true. I was building a foundation for a woodshed today, and it was about minus five. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not always fun. I came from an environment like that. I grew up mostly in Minnesota, so I've seen definitely both ends of it. Oh, yeah, Minnesota. Okay. Oh, yeah. Nice place, yeah. Well, here, let's go back for just a second and talk more about how you go about mapping the land, again, and assessing sort of what the potential of a site is. Um, aside from the risks, which we just covered, what are sort of your first steps when assessing a new property? Hmm. Well, um, I like to be on it in person, uh, despite what I said about the guy in Somaliland, um, if I'm going to do an actual, you know, put this here, um, I like to spend some time. Uh, this is where it gets kind of touchy feely. It's I tend to be, you know, analytical and fact based. But if I can, I like to just um, do meditative walking on the site to sort of get a feel for it. And it lets me clear my head and look at the land for, well, clear my head without any preconceptions and just read the landscape and think about the flow of water on a site and think about what can go in it. Um, for mapping, Google Earth is a great tool. Uh, until, until the end of last year, the beginning of this year, somewhere around there, it used to be you could import uh, Google Maps onto SketchUp and because of because Google gave up SketchUp and it's a separate company now, um, you can't do that anymore. And it's oh, a real pity because you used to be able to. That's why it hasn't been working for me. I didn't realize yep, they were acquired by someone else. I was gutted when I couldn't import maps anymore. Yeah, it was kind of, well, Google kind of gave it up. They purchased it and then they decided that it was a useful product, so they didn't want it anymore. Um, and they gave it up and I think it maybe went back to the original team, but, uh, they separated Google maps and you used to be able to do the coolest things. And it was really helpful. You used to be able to, I know, man, I used that all the know. time. I couldn't figure yeah. out why it wasn't working anymore. At least I got an answer. Yeah. You could stretch your dimensions. So if you were on yep. landscape, you could sort of exaggerate the elevation and get a good look at the land. If it wasn't, you know, if it wasn't like your region where it's really mountainous, uh, it's a little bit more rolling here, but you could exaggerate that. But you can't do that anymore because you can't mm. import decent maps. Um, so, you know, uh, observing the site and uh, keeping things on land that's not too steep. Um, 
getting a feel for for what can go in, um, getting a feel for where things will be safe, and then uh, realizing, well, I, I like to map things out with the GPS waypoints. And as you know, that gives you not perfect accuracy. You're sort of plus or minus. You're within a circle of about nine meters or thereabouts. Yeah. So there's a bit of leeway. But um, ultimately, when you get building on a site, it's okay. You pick a point and you build contour lines off that point. Like if it's, you know, this is the water height for our dam, you go off that point and uh, it's somewhat arbitrary, but you plan it out, you know, plan it out as best as you can on paper. Sure. But well, the, let's talk about yeah. that. How do you usually go about mapping contour lines? I know you said you started using GPS points, um, but those can be a little inaccurate. Do you have different yeah. methods for smaller sites and larger ones, or do you pretty much use the same method throughout? Uh, well, I tend to focus on on larger sites. The I used to do a lot of urban stuff through a, a Toronto group, and um, for the most part, it was designing garden. That gets old really fast. Designing gardens for people, yeah, and yeah. mainly designing gardens for people that they never actually implement. It's kind of like, uh, why am I doing this? And I hate going to the city. So, yeah, I'll just <laughs> build myself as a guy who does, you know, I do earthworks and I help out farms and rural properties. So this the scale is larger. Uh, and so very often in this region, like swales are not, you know, everybody who reads about permaculture thinks, oh, I'm not really doing permaculture until I have swales all over the place. And the way it usually works out, about half the people I see, almost half, maybe 40%, I say, yeah, don't do anything on this site. And if nothing else, then they don't spend any unnecessary money. Um, but uh, mostly saying no to swales around here. Um, Why is that? Well, in a um, temperate Temperate regions and where you are a tropical region, a wet tropical region, they're, they're a different beast. Certainly in, in temperate regions where I am, we don't have we, – we have extremely little runoff. And when we do have what looks like runoff, usually it's just in really wet periods. It's actually through flow, popping out, finding an easier route by popping out over the surface. Hmm. So you could make the argument, yeah, we could put in a swale and catch that through flow. But this is usually something that's just an issue in during the spring melt. And if it, there's a spring melt and it rains and you're kind of combining, sometimes it's it's frost from the winter hanging over and causing water to pop out. Sometimes it isn't, but uh, it's something that's that's not particularly particularly helpful. It's it's burning diesel without much purpose, without a lot of payback. Sure. And so I know we're talking about swales here. Um, for those of our listeners who are unfamiliar with what those are, and maybe a few other of the most effective water harvesting systems that could be installed on a landscape, could you explain each of those and kind of go over a little what each of them do? 
Sure, sure. Well, the the my favorite maybe is trees, and you plant them. <laughs> I could get into a, a discussion on that, but let's just sort of run things through for now. Um, ripping is maybe the next step up from that. So you've got you could use a bulldozer, but usually you're pulling a chisel plow that just cuts a cuts furrows, maybe maybe inch and a half, two inch wide furrows in the ground. And here in Ontario where I am, you just typically you're just going on contour. The system developed by an Australian fellow by the name of P.A. Yeomans has a, a nice approach, an elegant approach of going slightly off contour from valleys to ridges so that you can gently direct water away from valleys and tor- towards ridges to get more even hydration. Right. But basically here we just go on contour and you're creating a, a little cut in the ground. Any runoff comes through and it it drops right into that runoff or right into that furrow, sorry, and is then, you know, has a better chance of infiltrating. Now, I'd, I'd mentioned we don't have as much runoff here, but what they also do is they help to loosen up the soil and aerate the soil. Sure. And uh, around here, when you're, well, finding them is an issue. Finding somebody who's got one you can borrow is extremely hard. But when you talk to, like, the guys in the farm supply store, they'll just go, oh, yeah, subsoilers, those are great. And they do so much good for pastures, and they'll just go on for, for 10 minutes raving about the things. And then they'll say... Yeah, I don't know anybody who has one. <laughs> so it's like this fantastic tool that they know is out there that's really great, but we don't use it because reasons. So I don't really get that, but um, it is something that you can use to benefit in in a temperate climate. Uh, despite what I say about runoff, it does seem to like if you're you're say growing, uh, making hay, or you've got a pasture for cattle, it does great for the pasture. It's really good stuff. Nice. Uh, so that's an easy, easy one. Uh, been talking about swales and swales are just water harvesting ditches on contour. We put them on hills on contour and any runoff running down the hillside is intercepted and has a chance to collect in this ditch and then sink into the ground. And these are typically support systems for, for trees. Uh, a lot of people put them in over gardens. It's not a lot of effect. Maybe if I were, I might recommend it in a really arid place because, you know, you need all the help you can get. But some, something interesting happens with soil hydrology with respect to, you know, the, the density of a soil, you'll have, if it's something like clay, you'll have more runoff than if it's sand, it just doesn't sink in as quickly. But what's, what's garden soil is a looser soil. So you're always trying to build up organic matter in there. So you get a a lighter, looser soil. So when a, a dense soil like a clay comes into a less dense soil, like a loam, it holds within the clay to the point of saturation and won't move out of that until it hits saturation. So you could conceive of having clay soil above a garden and then 
thinking, okay, I'm doing great work here. I've got a swell. I'm going to catch the water and then it'll sink in and flow underground into the, into the garden. Not so much, not so well. Because of that interesting aspect of soil hydrology, it will, it will top up the clay. It will hold in the clay. It's because of the tight spaces between particles surface tension dominates in there and it doesn't want to let go surface tension will work against gravity it'll work against the overall flow and it'll even work against physical forces like freezing mm. so in a clay you know you can have um, you can have soil that takes a very long time to freeze even though it's you know it's hitting minus 20 the freezing point goes down when you've got these uh, these tight spaces so it's not really such a great thing to have above a garden i think in that case if you want to build a swale then build it in the loose soil in the garden not in the clay above it sure but uh we, there we are on on swales just water harvesting ditches on contour the next uh, next beastie we've got is a pond pond is just a hole in the ground that holds water and the easiest pond to make is if you've got a high water table, you dig a hole, now you're, you've cut into the water table, and now it's full of water, and that's it. Um, otherwise, if the water table's deeper than that, you're going to have to have some kind of a liner, whether it's compacted clay or something else. Um, it needs something to hold the water in it. So it's the water isn't already there waiting to waiting to show up. Sure. So you don't lose it all to infiltration into the into the ground. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And then the next one is is a dam. And a dam is people around here tend to call dams ponds, but I get very fussy about that. A dam is something that has one or more engineered walls. So you've got an a a human built wall to hold back the water. And that is a dam. Sure. And ideally, it's entering naturally or from a, a built source and is constantly entering either in that way or being drained out through a man-made source as well? Uh, yeah. You've got – it's got a controlled spillway. Um, as far as, as the water intake, it – well – we tend well really we advocate um, collecting runoff to fill your dam um, I don't recommend anybody go over an intermittent stream and sure. if you if you do I would say you know uh, have an engineer design everything for you for that um, in some parts of the world, it's it's uh, or some jurisdictions really, it's not a choice. You have to have an engineer anyway. Right, um, right. And either way, you probably want to get some professional opinions on that because there's likely to be a permitting pro process or some sort of regulation on what you can do with water that flows through your your site or land. Very often, uh, it tends to be a little bit more liberal where I am. Um, a farm can something that's registered as a farm can kind of do what it wants to do, but you start running into problems if you're um, if you're 
in what they consider to be the the watershed, the catchment yeah. for the watershed. And they just basically go by the shape of the land, whether whether there's a ravine there, if it's a ravine that goes into a, a water system, a river system, then you're going to have to argue your case for, for okaying that. Sure. Now, I know that the installation of these features that you mentioned is a really big job, especially the later ones that you talked about, and also especially on large pieces of land if you're going through the contours of the entire landscape. So let's talk about some of the ways that these different features can be installed, either by machinery or by hand, and maybe give a few options for people on different budgets. Right. Well, if swales are a useful thing in your region, um, you can lay out the contour and, well, I can talk a bit about laying out contour. Yeah, go ahead. Um, something, something that people always talk about in permaculture is, is an A-frame. Yep. Both an A-frame and a water level, or as the Aussies say, a bunyip level. I bring both of those to courses with the intent of teaching my students how much they suck. <laughs> and there's people listening to this right now going, oh, that's no, they're great. I use them to lay up. Yeah, go ahead. I, you go right ahead because I will not mess around with an A-frame or a water level. An A-frame, if you're out on a beautiful, beautiful day, no wind at all, and you've got, you know, your, your dangling bob, it will create wind. Within five minutes, it will create a gale force wind, and you won't be able to get any work done. I, says, <laughs> I don't want to spend time waiting for the plumb bob to come to a rest. Yes, you can put a spirit level on there, and then we get into the next problem. Uh, hills are not beautiful three-dimensional fields where everything is nice and smooth it's nooks and the whole thing is nooks and crannies yeah certainly around it's here we have like, so many rocks in the landscape yeah it's like taking contour on a crumpet you know there's <laughs> there's bumps there's holes and your foot is always going to land the foot of the a-frame is always going to land on one of those it's it's almost guaranteed so if you're using a laser level and let's spoilers use a laser level. Um, <laughs> you can put put the put the staff wherever you have to. You're like, nope, that's a hole. Nope, that's a that's a, a ridge or that's a bump. I'll just put it over here, and it's easy to do that. Um, I found with the water levels, uh, it's it's a bit better if you're using a larger diameter, like um, half inch or more uh, PEX tubing. Sure. But it heats in the sun and becomes softer, and then your water volume drops. So, you know, I've been using these, and I've been able to to watch as I'm trying to find the contour, where do I put the staff? I, I'm watching the water level drop as the whole system heats up and the plastic gets more pliable. It's like, oh, this is, this is worthless. <laughs> so... <laughs> Both of those systems, you know, you want to advocate them. Go ahead. I'm just, I'm I'm here to badmouth them. That's my role in life. Uh, laser for level, technology in a few circumstances, for sure. Yeah. Well, the laser level, my God, it's um, 
typically where I am, it's in the neighborhood of like 60, 65 bucks to rent it for the weekend. And you can do even compared to like a, a normal construction level or dumpy level with two people. Um, that's, that's much, much faster than both the A-frame and, and the water level. But, uh, you can do it in, in a quarter of the time of a, a dumpy level. If you're using a laser level, it's a one person job. It's dead simple to understand and you map it out. So, um, Nice. So let's get back to installation then. Yeah, yeah. And I'm glad because after that rant, where was I going? <laughs> <laughs> uh, you can uh, you can dig things by hand. People tend to under well, they tend to underestimate before they get started, unless they've done a lot of digging, how much digging they can do in what amount of time period. Yeah. Yeah. So. I, I had some clients in PEI, and this was back in the days when I was still advocating swales, and I I recommended one on their site. And really what I went there to do, well, I said you could put a swale across here, but what I went there to do was to map their site for, for them, and they decided to put in a swale. And uh, this couple were amazing go-getters. I mean, they, they had a site that, was more advanced. They'd moved there from Wales. And after 18 months, you know, they'd, they'd done more on their site than most people get done in, in five to 10 years. They were just amazing. Nice. But, you know, the next thing I know, they're out there with shovels digging a swale. And I'll be damned if they didn't, you know, dig a swale across, I don't know how many meters, like 300 meters or so of property. Just, Impressive. just amazing. I think, you know, something that would that would just about kill me. <laughs> so <laughs> I've done a lot of digging myself too in a lot of different types of soil, but it was mostly in the context of like installing um, trails in national parks. So I definitely get how much work that is. I mean, we can't get machinery on most of the sites where I do natural buildings and permaculture designs. So we often have local crews digging them. But man, like, you know, it's a it's a not only time consuming, it's a large expense to have a team doing that full time. And then obviously with all of the stones that are in our soil here too, um, people underestimate that. They're like, oh, they'll just be able to, you know, cut through this loamy dirt. I'm like, yeah, there's boulders in all of this. Yeah. <laughs> we've, we've literally had people with like hammers and chisels getting stones out of there. So yeah, I have a lot of respect for people who can manage to take on the initiative of digging in a large feature like that. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, you but for um, the rest of people, <laughs> what would you recommend? Well, um a nice trick if, if you are cutting in something linear across the landscape, uh like a um like a a swale is to use a bulldozer. If well, uh, what they call a, a six-way or one with a pat blade, a power angle tilt blade. And that is a blade that you can, the operator can tilt on an angle and then just cut in one corner of the blade and then cast, cast the dirt on the downhill side. So it's a very, very rapid way of cutting in swales. Just go across the landscape and, and cut them through. Uh, excavators do a pretty good job as well. They're, they're fairly quick. They're not as fast 
nothing is really as fast as a bulldozer. And you do have to think about, you know, your, your scale of things, um, how big it's going to be. I think I would be tempted up to a certain size to just make multiple passes with, with a bulldozer if I had to over using an excavator. But you do have to cost things out, like how much is, is dozer delivery and do you have access to it? So sure, sure. you can go to excavators or backhoes. Most places, most places around the world, you can have somebody who's got a backhoe and they can get in there and, and dig away at things if it's not too, too um, dangerous of terrain. Sure. But the important thing to know is that ideally, these are one-time expenses. If they're done correctly, you don't ever have to go back in and reinstall earthworks. They tend to just be installed at the beginning of a design implementation and barring some sort of catastrophe or some who knows what, it should just be a one-time expense, correct? Yes, yes. And, you know, you, you're going to want to make sure that you're putting it in the right way, too. I'm really, really big on safety. Um, all, all of the dams that I see other, you know, basically farmers have built around here, the walls are all too steep. Mm. So they're just sort of inviting, inviting danger. Let's put it right, that way. Right, right, right. And those um, really have some risks that come with them. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, everything I do has a, a three to one slope on the, on the water side and a two to one on the downhill side. Sure. And I'm sort of careful with what grade of material goes where, um, that's jumping ahead to dams, but you know, um, with respect to safety, I'm pretty cautious that way. Sure. Um, and if, you know, we've got, we've got, uh, something called Lita clay here, which is a quick clay, which when you agitate it, it can liquefy. And ah. if it, be, yeah, and it can, when it, the more saturated it becomes with water, the more dangerous it is. And that's the, that's the stuff where I just say no to, I mean, if somebody else wants to mess around with that stuff, it's on them, but I won't touch it. Just say, yeah, plant trees. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's a good but, safe uh, option for anyone and also very yeah. um, budget friendly. If people are just getting started and they want to do sort of something that can fit into a budget and not require too much physical labor, I would say trees are probably the way to go, wouldn't Yeah. 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 And they just do, they do so much. They're, they're very complex. And when you, when you look at them on paper, it kind of looks like you would expect them to decrease the amount of water, but it's just so fascinating how they work overall. Their, you know, their impact in the greater system is to make water more available. Um, yeah. I'd scoped out a site uh, about this time last year for a dam, and it was a very dry year last year. And we were out on, on the site and the, you know, the ground was really hard. And the farmer who was there, he said, yeah, in, since, since the end of July, this was October, we were there, you know, we hadn't had, we had less than an inch of rain, he said. So it was really dry. But he said, you know, they didn't quite know what was going on, how dams worked or things like that. He said, maybe you can tap off of the spring here. So he 
took me into this forested section on the on the hillside. And we stepped in and within about three paces into it, the ground started getting mushy. Mm. And sure enough, there was a they had a spring box there and everything and and the water the ground was wet and the water was flowing in the in the spring in the well itself. And that, all that was because of the trees. It it wasn't the magic of that location. It was just the trees doing that. That's remarkable. So, now here, let's switch gears just a little bit. I know there's a big difference between storing water in the soil and storing it in containments. So like either ponds, cisterns, or dams. Now, how do you work with a combination of storage systems in order to maximize the irrigation potential on a site? And how can they all be connected? Uh, well, maybe a, a good example is uh, a feature I put in on a, a an organic farm uh, not too far from me. And he'd wanted... A, a reservoir and to, to store water. And I, you know, my idea was let's catch as much as we can off of his site and we can store it in this dam. So the, the site was kind of, kind of a dream site. It was, it was just about as high in the landscape as we could get. Mm. And the house there was, had some hard surfaces, their greenhouse, their barn had more hard surfaces to catch rain and pretty heavy clay on site a kind of kind of interesting mixed soil but but mostly clay soil so a fair bit more potential for runoff on a uh, runoff on that site and also the idea of catching the spring melt off of there so what i did was uh, ring the site it wound up being sort of u-shaped but a a big swale around the top of the site which fed into a a dam there built near their house and that would allow water to be captured by the swale and then dump into the dam itself and at the same time the the swales serve as a spillway for the dam so there is safety if the water level gets too high what happens is, is it backfills across the landscape into the swales. And with the length of the swales and the size of them, that has the potential of, of adding about a, you know, close to a quarter million liters more than just the dam itself. Wow. So it can, you know, it can hold a lot. And then if it's doing that, if it is full to that point that it's backed up across the landscape, the the swales are not compacted. So they allow water to sink into the ground. So now you're rehydrating the top of the landscape. There's, there's a certain amount of that that happens through the dam. And it's not well studied, like how much water infiltrates into the soil from a dam. There, there's some... But kind of the point of a dam is to have that minimalized so that it holds water. Sure. So a dam itself is not really is certainly not ideal as something for getting water to infiltrate into the soil. But um, the swales add to that, uh, and I, I really like the idea of using swales as as spillways. So you can build a you can build a good secure channel that goes to a spillway and then beyond that channel 
have swales. So the difference is the um, the channels are more robust. They're, they, they can be compacted. The swales are just kind of a looser, a looser thing. But you do want a good secure channel to direct water away from the dam as as a spillway in case the water level gets too high. Sure. But um, that's sort of one way to to combine things. And then your swales, you know, the purpose of the swale is to um, uh, how do I say the the purpose is to aid trees. So now you've got another water harvesting feature on site when you start adding the trees. Right. Uh, oftentimes you plant out the downside of the swales with a lot of vegetation and that aids in not only infiltration of the water but also helps those plants to grow all the faster correct yeah yeah nice. and it, it makes a, a huge difference if you're in dry lands it's sort of night and yes. day yes yeah. i've seen that in action it's remarkable now uh could you tell me a little bit about the long-term effects on a landscape that has been maximized for water sequestration and storage. What can a person look forward to seeing improve over time as the system matures? You can you can expect um, more sort of more stability, or uh, how do I want to put this? Kind of like a flywheel effect. You've got you've got more resilience in the face of drought and when there is uh, abundant rainfall and your site is developed, you've got all your plants growing, you don't run into sort of the torrential runoff issues that you can run into otherwise, because now you've got a system that is more, more adept at handling larger volumes of water. So you've got sort of, you've got money in the bank, as it were, when it comes to droughts, and you've got a system that can handle abundant rainfall and that's you know that that's what we saw this year for as dry as last year was and as terrifyingly dry as it was this year where i am was remarkably wet so we've had two bizarre years back to back just polar opposites of each other um you've got your water you've got your well if you've got open water systems i like to in more ways than one i like to advocate them as fertility systems because they if if the only thing they do is attract wildlife they're dragging in with them uh, a tremendous amount of of fertility so hopefully uh, you know hopefully they leave something behind on <laughs> during their visit but that should never be overlooked the the amount of of nitrogen and phosphorus and and other nutrients that wildlife can cycle through a site can be tremendous. Um, I think a lot of a lot of our trees here are kind of in trouble because of the loss of the passenger pigeon. And mm. I I I'd, I'd worked it out once, um, and it's was something within their range. It was something in the order of something like 3 billion kilograms of phosphorus per year within their range that they deposited. So we lost a lot when they were gone. So if you're, no if you're attracting wildlife to your site, you're, you're bringing in, well, they're bringing in their fertility and leaving it behind. Right. 
and well, I, I've got a little a little Chinampa system um, on my site that's uh, still in still in the works, still being still to be expanded. But just the this little section that I built within four years, four this blew my mind. You know, we're in a cold climate here, and it's not as active as yours. But within four years, it had accumulated about a foot of of topsoil. And this was just rich, rich colloidal organic matter. Yeah. You know, when I when I mucked it out, it was it was akin to mucking out a, a septic tank. It was you know wow. it was rank, but it was you know it was biological material. Right. Uh, very very fertile years. material. Yeah. Yeah. Jumpas um, are absolutely some, remarkable. I'd love to talk more about those. Those were developed in this area of the world by the, uh, I think it was, I can't forget uh, which area of Mexico that is, but we're not far off. Well, they they still have some of those systems in in Mexico City, and they really? in that region. Yeah, yeah, and that was sort of you know it used to be a lot of it used to be underwater. Yeah. Not much of that remains today, but um, great systems. And they uh, the interesting thing for me is. Other cultures caught on to this as well, independently. So um, I'm sure you have a habit of occasionally tooling around on Google Earth and just checking out areas. And I, I found, have done, yeah. yeah, I found these same systems in Kerala in, in India. And I um, was sort of guest lecturing for a, an agricultural course at, at Lindsay College, uh, uh, Fleming College, here in Ontario, and I had mentioned this, and and one of the students said, "Yeah, yeah, I'm from that area, and my my grandma's farm's got these, and yeah, these we use them for you know growing fruit trees and and producing fish within them." So other other people have hit on the same idea, and it's it's just such a, a great idea. Fantastic, it's really amazing, and you know the, these tiny little. If you came on my site. Um, everything on my site happens in super slow motion. You, you, you probably laugh at how small scale it is, but these tiny little things on site one year, uh, in, in March before the ice was out, I look out there, I'll be damned. I don't know where it came from. You know, it's, it's a ditch leading into it through, through a pasture. There's an otter in that thing, diving down, digging in the mud, digging up frogs and then pulling them out and crunching them. Wow. Where did that come from? (laughs) (laughs) It's remarkable what nature will do once it's had a few more of its tools sort of reestablished in a landscape. And it just takes off and starts the cycle of abundance as soon as those tools are sort of reintroduced. I'm I'm really glad that you said that. There's something that I wanted to say is, you know, people can get People can get really upset with environmental damage and what we've done, but we've got we've got machines that our ancestors could not imagine. We've yeah. got billions of people who've put in, you know, throughout human history and the damage we've done, trillions of hours of of labor working to destroy the planet. It's been it's been terribly hard work breaking it. It's been, you know, just so much effort breaking it. We haven't been trying to break it, but, you know, we've broken it. Right. And as soon as you start patterning things in the right way, it's like, bang, instantly. It, it yeah. starts, it's like, oh, okay. So it's so much easier to fix than it is to break. 
It is. Biological yeah. systems are brilliant that way. They I really wish, are. I wish more things were like that. <laughs> it's a testament to the resilience that was built before we came around and started meddling. And like you said, as you start to come to recognize the patterns and reinstall the essential tools that were there that created abundance in the beginning, you're right. Once once those uh, small adjustments, are, you know, sometimes large if you're talking about machinery and earthworks, uh, get installed, it it really starts to take care of itself. And so many unexpected things that perhaps weren't in the design from the beginning start to compound and become greater than the sum of their parts. And that's really for me when I feel like you, you sort of you get a affirmation from nature that your designs were on the right path when they start uh, outstripping your own ambitions for what you thought you could do in that place. Right, right. I uh, well, I, I like to joke about the the work I did in India. Um, <laughs> I, I, you know, I made some predictions for what would happen. We put in some some swales on a section of hillside that the farmer who let us work on the land kind of considered that section to be a write-off mm. and said, you know, carte, well, he didn't say carte blanche because he was speaking in Telugu, but whatever carte blanche is in Telugu. And <laughs> I cut in these swales and he's like, oh, you know, he, he told me through, through, um, through my friend who was interpreting, he said, you know, he, I got really worried. I saw you digging up my, my field and oh God, what have I said yes to? And he couldn't talk to me, right? So he just had to watch and observe. And then, and then I caught on. I saw what you were doing. So uh, the, the night before we finished, we had a pre-monsoon thunderstorm. And he rushed out there at 2 a.m. on his motorbike and ran across, you know, down off the road, across this field, and then up the hill, and then just shone his flashlight in, into the swale. And so all that water that would have washed off and been gone forever, now it's caught in the ground where I can use it. So I was, you know, I said, well, okay, three to five years time down at the bottom of that hill, when it's rainy, you're going to start to see sw uh, springs coming out. And I, I joke about, yeah, that was a safe bet because three to five years, they're going to forget what I said and I won't be around anyway. So it won't matter. <laughs> But I'll be damned if the, you know, the rains didn't come and I, I taken pictures of everything, but I didn't, I'm kicking myself now, but I didn't take a picture of this way, um, this, uh, well that they dug with a, an excavator sort of at the bottom and off to the side of where the swales were in. And it was, it was a three meter drop down to the water level in there. And they sent a photo in, you know, five months later. And they're standing, they're, they're crouching next to it and splashing water off of, you know, it, the water level is, is like 30 centimeters down from ground level. Like, holy mackerel, that worked better than I thought. And yeah. then they, uh, everywhere in the region, they establish mango trees with irrigation. And including on flat ground. And they didn't here. They just... Uh, Put in some trees. They were maybe about 60 centimeters tall or so. Planted them and left them. Now, they they have been slow growing. I, they would have benefited from some irrigation. But they have survived on their own. And they're, you know, they're... Last time I saw a couple years ago, they were maybe two meters high, thereabouts. Yeah. So, um, That's fantastic. 
Yeah, I, I did not cool. expect that. No, that's a remarkable story. Well, hey, Douglas, before I let you go here, could you tell us a little bit more about how people can get in touch with you? Any of the other resources that you have available? And if you have any workshops or classes coming up in the near future? Well, I did for the for the book, the Permaculture Earthworks Handbook, I made a website, which is permaculture, blah, let's try that again, permacultureearthworks.com. And the nice thing about that website is it's got a bunch of online calculators that people can use. And these will help you with planning and also planning out the costing of things. Because, you know, once it comes down to putting these projects in the ground, you start paying attention to money pretty quickly. Yep, so yep. these um, various calculators, they can help you, you know, costing out excavators, bulldozers, compactors, things like this. And there's also a, a swale calculator that comes from uh, my website I built earlier, which is permaculturereflections.com. And on permaculture reflections, there are also a couple of design fundamental design fundamentals courses so i've got design fundamentals one and two which uh, people seem to think are worth their time mostly they people seem to have positive feedback about it and uh, it's sort of my thoughts on design and what's important with with the overall design uh, process and if you're not doing permaculture you're just doing something that needs planning and designing then i think it might also be helpful as well. Certainly. A lot of the considerations that you would do for permaculture design apply to just about anything, such as, you know, taking a step back and observing, uh, planning for abundance and, you know, sharing the wealth, just to name a few. I use them a lot in building, in my case, but also in a lot of the other projects that I manage. So let me just give a real quick plug for your book because I am a big fan of it. The Permaculture Earthworks Handbook is something that I've already referenced quite a few times while doing uh, assessments for clients. And like you talked about the resources that you have on your blog and also the way it goes into detail about uh, scaling and doing the calculations for many of these things were resources I had never come across before. And I know that Earthworks can be sort of a tricky thing. And again, because it can be also a very large initial expense and potentially something that you only ever do once, it's definitely worth getting it right the first time and making sure that it's going to be effective. And like you've said many times in this episode, safe overall. Um, So I would really recommend anyone listening to this to check out both the book, the blogs, and if you stick around after this interview, there will also be a chance to win your very own copy of the Permaculture Earthworks Handbook. So stick around for that for sure as well. Again, Douglas, thank you so much for taking the time. This was a very informative interview. I really hope we can connect again sometime soon and stay in touch. Well, thank you. It's, it's been my great pleasure to be here with you. Awesome. All right, we'll be in touch again soon, and you have an awesome day. Cheers. Bye. So if you were as inspired as I was listening to Douglas Barnes talk about the wealth of information in his book, then here's your chance to win your very own copy of Permaculture Earthworks. In order to be entered... All you need to do is leave a review of the Abundant Edge podcast on iTunes and send a screenshot of your review to info at AbundantEdge.com. From there, I'll pick my favorite and send you a brand shiny new hard copy of Permaculture Earthworks. 
Now, for those of you awesome people who've already left a review on iTunes, you can still win by sharing this podcast episode on Facebook. Just tag the Abundant Edge in your post and send your screenshot by email for your chance to win. As soon as you're selected, the lovely people at New Society Publishers will send you your hard copy if you live in the U.S. or Canada. Or if you live outside those two countries, they'll send you a digital copy straight to your email. So submit your entry to win today at info at AbundantEdge.com. So before we wrap up this show for the week, I've got some exciting news about the upcoming months. And I'm joined here now with my good friend and founder of Atitlan Organics, Shad Goodsey. Hey, buddy, what's new? Oh, man, so much is happening. First off, though, I just want to say thanks for having me, man. I really love your podcast, and I actually had a great time doing that interview back in one of the earlier episodes. Anyway, probably what's most exciting is our new collaboration between Atitlan Organics and Abundant Edge. As you know, we've been offering permaculture design courses for over six years now, and they really have become a staple here in Lake Atitlan. In particular, though, the Intro to Permaculture course is just an amazing way for travelers, gardeners, architects, basically anyone to fully immerse themselves in this new paradigm of permaculture design. Like, honestly, you can't take this course and still see the world the same way afterward. Man. Yeah, it's that's life-changing. Sure. But like I said, what I'm most excited about is that now, thanks to our collaboration, we're going to be able to offer your natural building course immediately after every one of our intro to permaculture courses. Literally, this two-week offering is like possibly the most complete package that I know of available anywhere. Basically, with these two courses alone, I think that someone should have everything they need to start their own regenerative project or just their own regenerative lifestyle. That's, that's what I'm excited about, man. But uh, yeah, what about you? What's going on? Man, well, you know already that me and the Abundant Edge team are gearing up for a big season as well. I mean, starting in November, we'll be breaking ground on a regenerative farming demonstration site, which is, of course, right down the hill from your farm. We'll be building animal pens, a classroom, outdoor kitchens, and lounge areas connected to houses, and it's all going to be made out of natural materials. I mean, the site is going to serve as a demonstration farm for perennial and regenerative farming methods for years and years to come. And we'll even be offering courses and internship opportunities to people who want to learn for themselves about how to build with natural materials and set up their own farms. Heck yeah. That sounds amazing, man. And honestly, this is just about the best place in the world to learn all these things too. I mean, this little town of Sununa in the gorgeous tropical mountains of Guatemala, like right here on the shores of Lake Atitlan, it's one of the most beautiful places in the world. And on top of that, you have this traditional indigenous Mayan culture that's still rich and alive. And probably my favorite part is that we have this world international community of alternative people that are open to new ideas and really putting things into practice. I mean, within walking distance of the Bamboo Guest House, you've got loads of things going on. we got the projects that we've already talked about, but you also have yoga retreat centers. You have Charlie Rendell's Natural Bamboo Building School. You have Love Probiotics. you got Fungi Academy. And honestly, loads more alternative, blow-your-mind type stuff. I honestly just feel like this is where it's all happening. Yeah, man, it really does. And I want to get as many people as possible in on these projects, but we've got to make sure that they've got the skills first. So what do you say? Let's offer a big discount to those who sign up for both courses. I mean, all food and lodging in the amazing Bamboo Guest House is already included in the tuition. So this will be like the best deal that we've ever offered. That's a great idea. 
Because, I mean, people can still take just one course if that's what they're into or if they can't make the full two weeks. But this will actually make the two courses more accessible to even a wider audience of people. And that way more people can get the knowledge that they need to get started doing what they want to do. So, hey, to all of you listening out there, we really want passionate and driven people like you to come and be a part of the community and the ecosystem that we're building out here. So if you're ready to take the next step and really dive in, there's no better time to invest in yourself by joining us on this journey to a regenerative future. Shad, how can they get in touch with us and see the upcoming events and workshop schedule? For sure. Well, for start, they can either go to atilanorganics.com and click on the workshops tab, or they can check out abundantedge.com and click on the education tab. Either one of these will get you all the information you need for all of the courses that we're offering in the months ahead. We're really looking forward to working and collaborating with all of you inspired and enthusiastic people out there. But even if you can't make it out yourself, I'm sure you know someone in your network who would jump at the chance to get involved in this positive, regenerative, and truly life-changing projects. So this is Oliver Gaucher and Chad Goodsey inviting you to come and be a part of the regenerative future that we are building. Can't wait to see you here. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode. As always, you can find all the show notes for this and all other episodes at AbundantEdge.com by clicking on the podcast tab in the navigation bar. On the website, you can also find a whole range of educational articles, as well as the services we offer, from design and consulting to education. While you're there, don't forget to sign up for our newsletter, where I share updates and pictures on our projects, regenerative living articles, and even free resources and giveaways. Right now, you can get a discount code for 50% off your digital subscription to the incredible Permaculture Magazine of North America, simply by finding the code under the show notes of this episode. Thank you sincerely to all of you who have and continue to add comments and send feedback to me. Your contributions help this to be a conversation and dialogue that it's meant to be. For anyone else interested, you can email me and the whole team directly at info at AbundantEdge.com. All of your feedback makes these episodes and interviews so much more engaging and help me to give you the information and content that you want. Thank you so much for listening, and I will see you again on next week's session.